0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50%
1: off your first order.
0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Okay, let's just talk for a minute on how we want to structure this. Good talk.
2: Sorry. <laughs>
0: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by uh, a very uh, tired uh, Ezra Klein and and Sarah Cliff. I don't look chipper to you. Um, I feel like I look surprisingly chipper, given how late I was up. We were all up late last night. (laughs) Um,
2: I do not feel like I look chipper at all.
0: I told... I told uh my my toddler Jose that you know we should he should feel free to sleep in after election day, come in uh to, to work a little late, but he um he was up bright and early and wanted to, to get the get the takes. So um you know, I'm I'm very tired. He he was a Bernie guy all along and had a lot of a sort of a giddy I told you so attitude this morning oh. that I found frankly a little off.
1: Two year olds, right. man. So there was an election last night, as you all know by now. Donald Trump won, the Republican Party won, Democrats got devastated as far as we can tell at every level. Uh, we want to talk about a couple of things today. We want to start by talking about how the election was predicted so wrongly, uh, how all the forecasting models, as far as we can tell, got it wrong. All of the polls got it wrong. There, There is no quantitative threat of evidence leading into this election, save maybe one, which we will discuss, which came out looking good at all. Uh, we also want to talk about the immediate policy consequences of this election. Things are going to change for many people in ways that are going to do irreparable harm to their lives. I think that it is easy sometimes to look at this kind of thing as red team versus blue team. That is not what this is. Things are going to change very quickly in health insurance, in who is allowed to stay in this country, in climate change. A lot of the people who will be most terribly affected by this election have not been born yet and did not get a chance to vote. So we'll we'll discuss that a bit. Stay tuned for that cheery discussion. But I actually want to start here by talking about something that happened at Vox a couple of months ago. We had wanted, uh, as part of our election coverage, to build a forecasting model uh, along the lines of what you know, 538 and the Upshot and others have done, but we wanted to find a way to do something that would add value to the conversation. And so we and, and Dylan Matthews and, and Sarah really took the lead in this, but we 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 worked with some political scientists to do something called an ensemble model, uh, using political science forecasting. And what the political scientists had there basically was a way to weight a bunch of different fundamentals-based political science models, models that took into account things like the state of the economy and the president's approval rating and can make a prediction far in advance, took into account their past performance. And then added the polls into them to to weight them a little bit to current information. And when we built that model, the thing that happened is that despite polling showing Clinton was way ahead and had always been ahead and seemed to be in no danger of losing that lead, indeed, she really didn't ever lose that lead over the course of the primaries, that model kept telling us Donald Trump would win.
2: And and we didn't believe it. We like, didn't this believe was it. a no. very, sort of, like to give you a behind-the-scenes look at Vox, we were quite Challenged by this, and we ended up rethinking. Yeah, we reworked we our journalism around what our model was telling us to. Or we we, the no, to we it, reworked the model. No, we didn't rework the model. I want to be careful <laughs> with that. We, yeah. we kept the model, we kept what we the model. did was we
0: reworked the, t- the journalism. Yeah. So yes. the, the journalism yes. became about the divergence.
1: Yes, yes. between the model. the model. This and was the, the Trump tax. The divergence yes. between what the model said the Republican would get and two party share of the vote, and where Trump was. Now, the point is not that the model called this correctly. The the model predicted a slight edge for Trump in the popular vote, which he did not have. But what I do want to say, what I think is interesting about it is that it gives you a different baseline for thinking about what happened here. We, working off of polling and I think working off of the best information we had, information that is usually quite good, thought this was Clinton's to lose and how could she lose it? What this model said was actually what you would have expected to happen in this election is the Republican won. And sure enough, in this election, the Republican won. And he
0: won by somewhat less than the model Mm -hmm. would predict, right? It's it's, – if you start with the expectation – driven by the model, that the Republican will probably win, and then you add in your sort of intuitive sense that Donald Trump is worse than your average candidate, and that even if you think Hillary Clinton is worse than your average candidate too, that Donald Trump is, you know, in a head-to-head, that like he's worse, that is reflected in the popular vote. Like he underperformed what a fundamentals-based model said he would do, but the fundamentals-based model said he would
1: win. So that is context but then the the contact the the sharper information stream which we were all operating and and I was here and and this by the way this point about the model is to to say not something we got right, but very much something mm-hmm. we got wrong, right? None of us here at this table believe this model. All of us said, this is ridiculous. And indeed, some of the political scientists who had built the models that were working mm-hmm. in, inside this ensemble said, absolutely not. Alan Abramowitz, who had the Time for Change model, which was the most accurate of the models, which showed a Trump victory, said, I don't believe my own model this year. Yeah, we
0: had a good piece, like an interview with Alan <laughs> yeah.
1: Abramowitz,
0: in which he was not saying, listen to my model. My model is great.
1: All the polling, all the other models, which are all really based on polling, it showed a Trump win. And this was just a huge miss. It was a huge miss uh, across the board. And in a way, and and Matt, I think you, you've had some good insight on this, in a way that wasn't just the, the effect of it, wasn't just that on election night, people were surprised, but that for quite a long time before the election, both in terms of political campaign strategy and journalism, a lot of mistakes were made. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just like one thing is
0: I was joking around with a couple other uh, journalists who uh, cover similar issues to me. And we were all kidding around about how all of our big feature pieces about. The left's plan to win the Clinton transition and like alter American economic policy in a more populist direction—like we're all going to have to be canned. Like, a, but a ton of publications were were working on this, um, and I think uh, the, the New Yorker even ran its one uh, before the election by, by Alec Mcgillis. Um, it's it's a pretty good article. Um, but a lot of not just you know journalists were working on this because it was an important story, but like progressive groups were spending a lot of time and energy during an election season on a political strategy that assumed Hillary Clinton was going to win the election rather than on like trying to get Hillary Clinton to win the election. Um, And that journalists, I think, you know, consistently covered Donald Trump as a fascinating episode in American politics and Hillary Clinton as the likely next president of the United
1: States. Who needed to be investigated, vetted.
0: Yeah. And so you saw, you know, so conservative media was obviously like quite critical of Clinton and indeed was somewhat less supportive of Donald Trump than they would be of of most Republicans. But, um, you know, people, a a lot of uh, journalists, news outlets that are sort of ideologically positioned to Clinton's left, who if... The race was perceived as close or Trump being up might have been in their emotional energies still like, oh, my God, Donald Trump is really bad. We're instead like, OK, we got to like hold Hillary accountable and mainstream organizations. I think you really see this in in The New York Times' coverage, which was quite deep on both candidates and had a lot of good Donald Trump investigations as well as a lot of good Hillary Clinton investigations. But in terms of like what got on the front page, what got covered again and again, what did they sort of hassle the campaigns? about it was weighted toward we're scrutinizing hillary clinton and i think the reason was i mean it's true right it's much more important to scrutinize the next president than like some dude who's lagging in the polls because he's a buffoon but if you had known if the polls had been saying he was up you would have a, a whole different attitude toward it to me one of the most striking stories of of election day was george w and laura bush who had been sort of quietly against Donald Trump. I mean, it was known that they were against Donald Trump, but they weren't doing anything about it, right? Saying on election day, finally revealing that they were not going to vote for Donald Trump and they were going to leave their ballot blank and they were going to support Republicans up and down the ticket. Um, Now, I don't have deep insider knowledge of of the Bush camp, uh, but I feel like their thinking is pretty clear. Like they didn't like Donald Trump. They didn't want Donald Trump to be president. They made it perfectly clear through sort of normal channels. So that's how they felt. But they also assumed he was going to lose and they're conservative Republicans. So what they were working on was making sure there wasn't a huge Democratic wave election, the question of, oh, my God, what should I like actually do this morning to make Donald Trump not become president did not seem significant to them or to John Kasich and and many other anti-Trump Republicans because they – felt that he was going to lose and that they were taking a personally risky, courageous step by refusing to endorse him. And they weren't like asking, like, am I doing enough? Because they thought they were doing enough. They thought nothing more needed to be done. Mm
2: -hmm. And, you know, there's the media side of it and the campaign side of it where you have a campaign. You have two campaigns that actually thought they were operating in a world where Hillary Clinton was very much leading in the polls. The Trump campaign has been – quite clear that they didn't have any kind of secret polls that really like showed this inside lead for Trump, that they were getting the same kind of numbers all of us have been seeing for the past few months. So you see, like Matt was saying, so much work being put into this transition, that that's like where the energy goes, is you have Hillary Clinton like thinking out like what her White House looks like and who's going to staff it. And the energy, you know, doesn't as much go into the ground game, and I, I think one of the things I am really unclear on is how to think, and one thing I think we're going to have to grapple a lot with is like the, is the role of campaigns and whether they matter. We do know that it's Ooh, very yeah. tr- true that Hillary Clinton had a much more significant campaign. She had infrastructure of a campaign that we typically expect from candidates, while Trump really, really didn't have that as much. And one of the things you know, I, I don't think we have the answer to, and this is something we are going to really see grappled with in coming years is—so so I do think it's true that the Clinton campaign operated under the assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win and built a campaign around that. It's unclear to me how much campaigns matter at this point. On the one hand, I want to say, well, they would have done it differently if they'd known that if the polls had more accurately represented where things are going, they would have had a better campaign, and maybe that would have changed how things work. On the other hand, I feel like we have pretty clear evidence that campaigns— might not be that meaningful, that all this work that Clinton did to build this infrastructure, this huge advantage that she had, really—it's hard to know what role that played. If it kind of—if it maybe made the Trump win less big than it would have been otherwise, I think is the way I think about it right now. But I'm also, at this point, very open to having my views— changed on this as we learn more. I
0: feel like for, we are going to need to study this more. But I feel like we do have some evidence that the Clinton campaign's ground game did work and that it was mispositioned, right? So Hillary made some very aggressive, uh, essentially party building moves, right? She had field offices in Arizona. She had a field office in El Paso. Um, she had field office in San Antonio, And if you look at the election results, right, like Clinton did worse than Obama nationally. Um, She did much worse than Obama in key Midwestern swing states, which is why she lost. But she did better than Obama in Georgia. She did better than Obama in Texas. She did better than Obama in Arizona. Um, She did better than Obama in Nevada, which is to say that this big Democratic Party effort to like build field infrastructure, to connect with Hispanics and turn out the Latino vote, it appears to have worked, right? It just – it didn't put them over the top in Florida. And in the list of states where it could plausibly have put you over the top, it's only Florida and Nevada. A uh, huge share of the Latino population lives in California and Texas. This is why Clinton won the popular vote, right? Is She did mobilize all these new so, Hispanic voters. And if you could relocate El Paso and San Diego – to Michigan, like she would have won the election, but, you know, she didn't. And we never saw, right, you're going to look back at an election in which you won the popular vote, but you lost the electoral college, in which you had field offices in Texas, but not in Michigan, and where you were scrambling at the very last minute to get everybody on the plane to Detroit, um, in which you never visited Wisconsin. You know, and you're really going to say, okay, you know, we made some aggressive strategic moves to try to expand the map. I mean, there was a point where she took some of her fundraising, right, and plowed it into down ballot races and, and infrastructure, um, rather than into defensive moves in in blue states. You know, because she thought she
1: was winning. I, I do think a couple things here that are interesting, though, that that are worth pulling out from the exit polls, and 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 it goes to this point. One lesson I've taken from this is that get out the vote is a additive to enthusiasm. Yes. That it is just very, very, very difficult to get out the vote for a candidate that the electorate that you are trying to mobilize is just fundamentally not that enthusiastic about. This was a very low turnout election. Fewer people voted for from the numbers I've seen as of this morning. Fewer people voted for Donald Trump than voted for Mitt Romney. Um, And and many fewer voted for Hillary Clinton, obviously, than for Barack Obama. This was the lowest turnout election since 2000, which uh, I think is not what people expected, is not what you were hearing anecdotally, by the way, on, on election day. Among the things that happened while, while that was going on – so the the Texas example is interesting here because I think that the one thing we did see, it wasn't as big as people expected. But there were certainly places where Hispanic voters were exceptionally mobilized even compared to where they'd been before. And so there, I think some of the field game really did matter. This happened a bit in, in California. It happened a bit in Texas. But it did not obviously happen as much in Wisconsin. I thought one of the really interesting uh, things you began hearing, uh, Nate Cohen at the New York Times made this point, Derek Thompson made this point, uh, and, and Thompson put it in a tweet I thought in a way that was smart, which was... Maybe the thing we learned last night is that in a majority minority nation, every ethnic group votes like a minority. And, and really one of the striking things about this election is, you see, the Asian vote for Clinton was 65%. The Hispanic vote for Clinton was 65%. The black vote for Clinton was 88%. And the white vote for Trump was 58%, right? Now, 58 is obviously less than 65, but it isn't so much less. Whites really voted like an ethnic group um, last night to, to some degree. And and Clinton only got thirty seven percent of that vote. By the way, there was a substantial third party vote there, uh, and that really, in some ways, decided this election. The the electorate was broken into reasonably low turnout, uh, racialized pieces, and uh, that and and oh, Donald Trump had the biggest one of them. And and something I want to make a point on here. One thing that you're hearing a fair amount of is, well, how can this have been about race uh, and 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 demographics if it was in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, which are places that went for, for Barack Obama at another time. And this is something that Jamel Bowie at Slate has said and, and others have said, but but I do kind of want to emphasize it because I think it's correct. Nothing is one thing. I don't think this is all race. I think just a lot of the baseline voting here in both parties is just partisanship. Most people who voted for Donald Trump did so because they were Republican. But Mitt Romney and John McCain did not run elections about race. They 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 ran elections in which, to some degree, while there were some dimensions of racial resentment there, they ran elections to a large extent. I think in which it was not considered proper to be litigating um, whether we should have uh, an ascendant white nationalism in this country. Donald Trump created a permission structure and an uh, and an engagement and, and enthusiasm strategy based around restoring. Um, white nationalism to the center of the Republican Party and, and to the center of American politics. And that I think the evidence is that, that excited a lot of rural white voters that they turned out and that that was something that that they connected to. And it did not have a corresponding mobilizing effect on on the Democratic side. But I, I do think that's important. But we should also talk about the, the Democrats in that regard. Yes. Because here, here's where I think, I think some of the the takes on this,
0: as you say, were a little bit glib, right? And that like mm-hmm. the key point is that politicized ideological racial voting is not the same thing as or even necessarily all that related to personal prejudice right i think some of these takes are like well if you would vote for barack obama you can't be racist because you must not have like some huge gut level problem with black people um, and i think that's 100% true right A different question is when Barack Obama ran for president, he very much ran as not the black candidate, Mm -hmm. right? Which is very different from how, say, um, when, when Marion Barry ran for mayor in Washington, D.C., he ran as the black candidate right? Because he was running in a majority black city and was trying to mobilize racial support for him to overcome significant political disadvantages. Obama knew that there are very few African Americans in the United States and that he wanted to win the election. So he was not running as the candidate of black empowerment, except to the extent that all Democrats have have run that way since Lyndon Johnson. And in in a lot of ways, sort of used the fact that he's African American to upplay themes of racial transcendence Mm -hmm. and unity, said things that I think a white Democrat would actually have trouble getting away with at times. After 2012, right, there was a shift in the outgoing rhetoric of the Democratic Party, right? There was a lot more talk about the like Obama coalition of diversity and ascendancy, right? And a lot more emphasis on the – Party's debt to Latino groups and the need to like front load immigration reform type questions when they were blocked in Congress from pursuing the immigration reform legislation that they wanted, Obama made the decision that it was such an overriding priority of his political coalition to deliver protection from deportation for long-settled, undocumented families that he was going to do it in a way that really broke with the the precedence of, you know, he he had some legal basis for doing a, a sort of broad protection from deportation. But what he did with the DACA order was not the same as what previous presidents had did. People knew it wasn't the same. It was a big deal. There were some uh, critical columns about it written by Ezra Klein, um, you know, and and a decision was made inside the White House that this was an important legacy item for Obama, that he could not, you know, sort of, sort of let this aside. Then when Hillary Clinton was running in the primaries against Bernie Sanders, right, she really ran as the black and brown candidate. Even though she's white, right, like her argument was really leaned into the idea that like one major problem with Bernie Sanders' vision of social democracy is that it was excessively race-blind, Right. And that you needed progressive politics needed a like explicit race conscious element that she was going to interject. And she talked about intersectionality like in speeches. She said that white Americans need to confront systemic racism, um, which is not something I think Barack Obama has ever said. Right. And it it cast the Democratic Party in a different light as this like new party of this multicultural—and there was also a constant drumbeat of attention to the United States becoming a majority-minority nation, right? So I I think both Donald Trump was opening up a kind of white nationalist politics that Republicans hadn't previously put on the table, but also Democrats were kind of like flashing these warning signs at white Mm -hmm. people. Like, we're no longer asking you to accommodate minorities. We're asking you to, like, accept the end of white hegemony in the United States, Mm -hmm.
1: There's a lot to that, and and I want to bring in two things here. One is a conversation that became part of the Democratic Party but didn't begin in it, which is the Black Lives Matter conversation which obviously was headline news all around the country, structured a lot of discourse for some time, and I I think created a priming effect. Uh, It was in a different way than Donald Trump, suggesting that there was more of a conflict happening here than had been before, right? That was not a post-racial moment. As people think about this, I think they should think about a strain of research known as priming. There is a lot of evidence that people will hold different political opinions even if they are exposed to very small amounts of diversity. There's a, a study, and, and I'm, I'm doing this from memory, so I'll, I'll get the exact uh, numbers and, and quantities wrong, but there's a study where they would ask people who got on a bus about their political opinions, white men who got on a bus about their political opinions, and then in some set of the cases, they would just sit them next to two men speaking Spanish. And when they got off the bus, their political opinions would be significantly more uh, demographically conservative, uh, to, to put it lightly. And there are a lot of studies like that out there. So when you have an election year, when you have two years in which what is happening is you are priming. Uh, it, it, in this case, all Americans, right, in different ways, right? This was also something happening in different ways in the Hispanic community, in the African American community. But in, in this case, I think very saliently in the white community, when you're priming people to think about this as a racialized election, as a question of who is on top and who is on bottom, as a question of the relative status of of, of different races in this country, and as a a question of you know whether or not their primacy is under threat, you're going to get different political opinions than at a time when you have not primed them to be thinking about it that way. Mm-hmm. Mitt Romney and Barack Obama colluded in 2012 to agree that the election was about taxes and financial regulation and Obamacare. And so a lot of people who were looking at this said, yeah, I don't like the rich guys like Mitt Romney. I want somebody who will care about people like me. And they chose Obama on that metric um, in this case. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump colluded to say this is a question of racial identity in this country of to some degree, which which races, which demographic coalition will hold the most power uh, of sexism. And sure enough, you got a, a different result based off of that.
2: But I think that also I mean, it grows out of Obama policy as well, right, where you have I think more than we often recognize like Obama doing a lot of work to reduce inequality in ways that is very you know, beneficial to to minorities. If you look at the stats on Obamacare, for example, you see that's had a disproportionate effect on reducing the uninsured rates of Hispanics, of, of, of African Americans, largely because these are groups that have just not had insurance in the past, that, that you've seen a redistribution towards these groups that actually shows up in policy. Like there is an actual underpinning to this view that, you know, these people are rising up more. And that is that's a goal of the administration to reduce inequality, to provide these programs to marginalized groups that haven't had it before. So I think, I mean, it's partially a rhetoric thing, you know, hearing about Black Lives Matter. But there there's also, you know, something tangible to point to as well, that this was, you know, obviously the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, it was not passed as, you know, a welfare program for African-Americans or welfare. It, it's not, you know, in the law itself written is a policy to benefit minority populations but that is a lot of the work that it's doing and I think a lot of democrats would be quite happy w- with that. So I think you know, it is both the rhetoric that we're hearing but it also grows out uh, in reaction to the way the Obama administration has has governed and I don't know if that was you know something that could be changed or not or how 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 else the— how else that could have played out?
0: It's also worth saying two two things on a on a non racial angle. Yeah. That one that I think has gotten a little bit oddly underplayed in like stories about Donald Trump and, and the white working class, which is that he not only shifted Republican Party positioning on trade policy, um, he shifted Republican policy positioning on Social Security and Medicare. Um, which I feel like, if it had come about in a different context, mm-hmm. people would have legitimately recognized as like a political
1: earthquake yeah right like if Marco if, Rubio had said it
0: right like and just if you had just asked someone like abstractly in 2014 like what's a good issue for a Democrat who needs to get a like wavering older white working class, Person who lives in the Iron Range of Minnesota, and in fact has been a Democrat all his life, but has been like gravitating a little bit away from a like increasingly woke political party, is like you would say you want a message to him about fighting for Social Security and Medicare, right? Or like those are like the good democratic issues for that audience, right? You don't want to message to them about how black lives matter. And you also don't want to message to them about the importance of a Medicaid expansion in Alabama. Like it's not relevant to their lives. Whereas like fighting for social security and Medicare is like the thing that Democrats like say they have to offer to older middle class people in the United States. Mm -hmm. And when under under uh, Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney, there was an effort by Republicans, a semi-successful effort to sort of finesse it with this like 10-year phase-out proposal. But they would still be saying, and then we're going to devastate the programs. Uh, Donald Trump, I don't know if this will be implemented when he becomes president, but he in his campaign statements genuinely pivoted away from Republican proposals for entitlement program cuts. A lot of stuff Trump did – like I'm working on a big piece about Trump and financial regulation was like pure hide-the-ball con man stuff. Like Mm -hmm. if you look at the Mm -hmm. policies Trump endorsed, it is a lavish giveaway to hedge fund managers and international banks with whom Donald Trump has giant personal conflicts of interest. And he just like – smokescreened this by, by knocking Hillary Clinton. But like on the entitlement programs, like he does not have – there's no – I've been all over that website. There is no secret place mm-hmm. where Trump like signs the blood pact with Paul Ryan to privatize Medicare. Maybe he will anyway. I mean, I don't know. People people sometimes lie. But as someone who believes that politicians mostly follow through with their promises, like I kind of do think Trump is going to sit down with Ryan and be like, you got a lot of policy initiatives there, man. Like we can just like leave this one (laughs) unpopular one like on the table and go forward with the rest. This
1: is a great segue Mm -hmm. to talking about policy. But I want to make one last just kind of macro point before we we shift over from this, this discussion. This election came down to, let's say, 1.5 to 2 percentage points of the vote in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, and Michigan. It also is an election in which Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. So you could have had uh, an outcome today where Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, where there was a slight swing, uh, just really a geographical redistribution of where she was strong and where she was weak. Uh, and she won. And, and the only reason I bring that up is that. One thing that you will hear us do in the coming days, one thing you'll see everybody do in the coming days, is make giant sweeping statements about what happened here, what the ideological um, content of this election was. I mean, and and I I intend to go right up this point about <laughs> racial priming and how it affects people, people's votes. But it's also the case that there's a little bit of a butterfly flaps its wings effect here. Now you might say that's not true. The the, the question is why was this not a 60-40 election for Clinton? And I think that's a, a different and, and also reasonable question. But uh, I do think here that just one thing that it's always just worth keeping in mind is, A couple of things go a little bit differently, partly because Hill Clinton did win the popular vote. Um, So it's not like we're saying like John Kerry kind of did in 04 that, well, if Ohio had been different, he would have won the Electoral College, even though he still wouldn't have won the popular vote. Because Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote, there would have been a a perfectly normal narrative out of this. Yeah, the the Hillary Clinton thing basically worked in an election or maybe – Right, if she had 273
0: electoral votes Mm -hmm. and a million votes. Yeah. edge in the, in, in the, pump. we'd say like, yeah, it was a close election, but she won. Democrats won the popular vote six times out of seven. There's no yep. precedent for that in American history. And we'll be talking about, can Republicans ever win a presidential
1: election? I guess. Yes. So I just want to note that as a, as a little bit of a, um, a cautionary note here.
0: If you're anything like me, you know sometimes you want a snack, and if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're gonna eat junk food, and it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great, and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners, so you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some you know slightly more indulgent pretzell-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to Try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans fifty percent off your first order. If you go to naturebox.com/weeds, so you go to naturebox.com/weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get fifty percent off your first order. naturebox.com/weeds.
1: So what is going to happen now is that Donald Trump is actually going to become president. He is going to have a Republican House, he's going to have a Republican Senate, he's going to be able to make the uh, appointment to the Supreme Court. Um, I think it will look in the sweep of history very bad that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not retire when Barack Obama could have uh, have been the one to appoint a replacement, Uh, so he might make more than one appointment. They, He and the Republican Party will have the opportunity to make a lot of policy. Um, there has been planning for this already happening. Chris Christie has been running the uh, Donald Trump transition effort. They've been thinking about executive orders he could do in his first couple of days to do things like unwind Barack Obama's um, – uh, executive order to protect dreamers and and other sort of long-standing um, unauthorized immigrants in the country from from deportation he could pull us out of the Paris climate treaty he he can do a lot and then in working with the Republicans he can repeal Obamacare or try to he he certainly has some votes to repeal Obamacare the question is what they could put in its place um he can pass the Ryan budget uh, even though Republicans have a reasonably slim majority in the Senate. Most of what they want to do, particularly budget wise, can be done through reconciliation. So it only actually requires 51 votes. There's about to be a seismic change in American policy, much in the way I think there was and potentially even more so than 2009, 2010, when the Obama administration at the very least had to spend a bunch of their political capital responding to the financial crisis as opposed to simply moving their agenda forward. So things are about to change. Um, A lot of people in a very real way could be about to get hurt um, and probably are about to get hurt. There's going to be a lot of cuts to programs that serve the poor. A lot of people who can't stay in this country who intended to, refugees who really need asylum here who can't find it. Um, and this is something that this is something that on the one hand is the central story now. And on the other hand, I think that we all have a little bit of trouble figuring out how to predict exactly because Donald Trump has always operated under these kind of strange rules where nobody really feels that they know what he believes, um, except on things like maybe immigration. and And I should say, in his victory speech, instead of coming out and saying, we're going to make America great again and build that wall, he came out and talked about a gigantic infrastructure. Program. Um, he didn't talk about the Ryan budget. He didn't talk about taxes. He didn't talk about immigration. He didn't talk about any of it. Talked about infrastructure, and he talked about refugee, uh, and he talked about veterans. So this is going to get both complicated and consequential very quickly. And one thing that will, of course, be important here is that he will be working with the Republican Congress so their priorities will also be meaningful here. And Sarah, you've been doing a lot of work on on the work they've been doing around Obamacare.
2: Yeah, so they have, um, in a way that did not get much attention until yesterday uh, slash this morning, have really taken very concrete and important steps that they need, that need to be taken to repealing Obamacare. So the big... Obstacle to appealing Obamacare is that usually you need a filibuster majority filibuster proof majority to do anything in Congress. You need sixty votes. The thing that Republicans did last December, which is now shaping out to prove hugely consequential, is they essentially crafted and passed and got approved a reconciliation version of repeal. So this is a version that only deals with budgetary parts of the ACA. They got it signed off on the parliamentarian. They got it passed through the Senate, through the House. It went to President Obama's desk. President Obama obviously vetoed it. And it was at the time, it was like, oh, look at this like silly other Republican um, Obamacare repeal, like the 60th time they try and repeal it. What are they doing? They were doing something very strategic. They were creating the version of Obamacare repeal that you would only need 51 votes to pass. And now President Trump, on his first day in office, can very much pull this bill off the shelf. And it doesn't get rid of everything in the ACA. There's some parts that stick around, but it gets rid of the very important parts. It gets rid of Medicaid expansion. It gets rid of the subsidies for health insurance for low- and middle-income Americans. It really does the work of dismantling the law that we know as Obamacare. And so this is something, you know, we've seen a Republican Congress um, passed before. They just did it at the, st- at the end of um, last year. This is the first time since Obamacare passed it. Ezra, you've covered this. I mean, this is the first time that Obamacare repeal feels like an actual possibility that is like a more, like an actually possible Here, outcome. Here's my
1: question for you. What does this bill, because I've not studied it in the depth that you have, what does it do with all these people?
2: So it includes a two-year transition. So it sunsets Obamacare at the end of 2017. It does not have a plan for after that. It has been scored by the Congressional Budget Office as tw- as leaving 22 million people without health insurance coverage. So if
1: you did this plan in – they would have to actually pass this in 2017, right? Because yeah. they're not going to – because yes. Donald Trump uh, yes. is the president. So this so, would sunset 22 million plans Right before the midterm elections in twenty eighteen,
2: so this is this is the political complication that comes up. They're right? like, like setting a
1: bomb for themselves. <laughs> so, so
2: well, I mean, so you could to you could change the yeah, so you no, could change to sure, you yeah. could keep the end of twenty seventeen, for example. You could have it sunset in the, end of the year end of twenty like. But these are, I mean, I mean, this is the tension, right? Like this is
1: this is the but, tension.
2: But so far, I mean, you do not see Republicans backing off of this in any way. Um, Paul Ryan went to a press conference today, said he's committed to Obamacare repeal. Like he is setting up they've spent so long setting up this path they've passed this bill before i mean you do need the coalition to hold right like you do you can't really have that many republicans defecting you need them to stick together on this but they have i don't i mean like i, think, I can't game this out because there's a very I, I, there's I think this
1: is so fascinating yeah. what they're trying to do here because they have not answered the central question Right, yeah. not just essential question for these people, but also essential question for their own political survival if they do this, which is they have not figured out replace even a little bit, and have yeah. just figured out a way to kick it. Right, and but, you could almost imagine a world where this becomes like the Medicare Doc fix. Right, mm-hmm. they keep not agreeing on a plan, and every couple of years they have to like push this sunset out. I mean, but
2: I don't think the sunset would be as dramatic as your, like it's poor people. Yeah, that's I mean, like nobody... like it's it's a small per- it's. Big, but it's a small percent of the population, you remember, right? You remember
1: when a couple million grandfathered plans got canceled at the beginning of Obamacare? Yeah, but that was middle class people's <laughs> kids. I mean, uh, anyway, here I, I, I you I, might be I, right. I'm, I'm just know, yeah. I just still find there is not we have not done anything like take health care from 22 million people in a stroke before. Here, here's here's what I will say in more journalistic vein. Yeah.
0: Something I worked on over the summer when at a moment it looked like there might be like a total Trump collapse was like what did Democrats in Congress think they would do if they had this like unexpected, you know, majority fell into their lap and they were quite cautious You know what I mean? Their feeling was that in the Democratic Party, um, just as there was in 2009, that there would continue to be in 2017 a lot of trepidation about bills, you know, that like a lot of stuff that Bernie Sanders would want to do, marginal members would not vote for. Even a lot of stuff that Hillary Clinton would want to do, members in marginal districts just would not vote for, that there was a strong belief in the – electoral significance of policy initiatives, you know, so that like a carbon tax might kill you, um, but not doing it might save you in your your vulnerable seat. Um, So, you know, that was interesting. I I wrote it down. And then I asked people like, well, okay, do you think that like the inverse is true? Like, does that mean that like Super bold Republican policymaking is going to create like a huge policy? electoral backlash or do you think republicans will shy away from this and none of them thought republicans would shy away from it and none of them thought republicans would face a backlash and you know you kind of press people like why like why this dissonance and like they didn't have like super good reasons but and then when i've talked to republicans uh republicans on the hill who've talked about this they've talked about trump they've had you know trepidations about their relationship with trump They've had concerns that Trump might sort of at random throw elements of their agenda overboard or he might get the country embroiled in like some big controversy that they don't care about. But they never expressed to me like a doubt that like if Trump says, yeah, let's do Jeb Henserling's total deregulation of the financial services industry, that – Kelly Ayotte or, you know, someone else right. in a in a purple state is going to be like, whoa there, that sounds unpopular. Like mm-hmm. they firmly uh, this is not quite how they would describe it, right? But they, they firmly believe like before and after Trump in a theory of politics that is just much more visceral right. than the Democrats' theory of politics, right? That it's like we are the guys who do the right thing, and we are going to show bold and decisive leadership <laughs> that fixes problems. And we are going to run on that like, right. and without apology.
2: To follow up on Matt, I know you were kind of like envisioning. Well, how can they kick twenty million people off of insurance before the midterms? The flip side of that is, how can they go into Congress with control of the White House of Congress no, after campaigning for six years on Obamacare repeal, finally get the path and say, actually, you know what? Like nope, that's that we're fair. We're not. They're in a tough position, but I mean, if I, you know, I would put down my my bet on our um, very widely listened podcast that like, I think they're going to pursue it. Like, I think this is where, where it heads. And, and, you know, I was talking to a Republican aide from the Senate Finance Committee who worked on the Hill during um, Obamacare's um, passage, and, and the way he kind of saw it, he thinks it, it'll be repeal will come first, that how this plays out is repeal gets passed and they'll say, well, we have a two year window to figure it out. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But, like, they kind of start off with this transition period. To be clear, and, Donald like, Trump has promised
0: new plans that are going to be, quote, unquote, terrific.
2: <laughs> well, he has. OK, so there is Trump care. And if you'd like to read about it on Fox.com, you could. He, he has. And this is a place like, you know, it's yeah, going
1: to get rid of the lines.
2: He's going to get all oh, no more lines anymore. Um, you know, it speaks to I, I think one of the ways this race was different that, you know, there were a few pieces here and there about Trump's health care plan. Like I wrote one when it came out in March, but there just wasn't serious coverage of this plan that he put out because it like just didn't feel real. But there, I mean, there is there is a plan and it still leaves 21 million more people without health insurance. I
1: believe there is literally no chance that if you ask Trump what is in that plan, he could get like I forget exactly. Repealing
2: Obamacare. He would get that. Right.
1: But the, he would get five of the bullet points, right? And I don't I don't mean that just to mock him. I, I do mean it because I, one thing that's going to happen here, right, and I don't know exactly how it will happen because one real big question mark is who are his staffers. But is people are going to sit down with him and they are going to say, Mr. President – here is what the consequence of doing this would be. Here is what we think the political consequence of doing that would be. Here's what you've said about this in the past that people might hold against. I mean this is just how White Houses work, right? You have a National Economics Council that structures economic information. You have a Domestic Policy Council that structures domestic policy information. And he – I think we genuinely don't know what he's going to say to that. Um, he's going to say, that's crazy. Like that's not what I promised people or I'll just say, yeah, that's exactly – that's totally fine. I'll just tell them it, it's 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 what we're doing. I do want to say that in this talk of the the political machinations here, I don't want to lose sight of 22 million people might lose their health insurance, right? That is the cost of this. That is Kathleen Parker at the Washington Post wrote a column about how no matter who won, everything would be all right. And actually at Vox, um, Julia Zari, who is a political scientist at Marquette, had a piece, and the piece was more complicated than this, but had a line at the top that I've been thinking about a lot where she said, sometimes everything does not turn out okay. And for a lot of people here, everything is not going to turn out okay. They are going to lose health insurance. Their children are going to lose health insurance. They are going to need medical care they don't get. This is true, I think, broadly for the planet. We've been making, uh, you know, maybe not enough, but some very real progress on climate change. That progress is going to stop um, for regulating Wall Street, uh, particularly if you're worried about a near-term financial crisis. This stuff is, is very scary. Uh, if you look at the Paul Ryan budget, I think people always underplay this part of it, but the way it achieves its long-term budgetary goals is by just doing massive indiscriminate cutting to the area of the budget known as uh, non-defense discretionary. That's a lot of programs for the poor, a lot of income support programs, nutrition programs, et cetera. People are going to hurt. um, Bad things are going to happen to them. I don't think we know exactly which ones or how many or how it plays out but something that I think everybody is going to have to focus on in a way that moves it far from being an abstraction. And that means, by the way, the Republican Party, the the one thing I will say is the incentives of governance are different than the incentives of being in the opposition. Parties act differently when they're doing that. It's true for Trump. It's true also for, for the Democratic Party, which in some ways may get less responsible in opposition, but is also going to, you know, for a party that did not turn out that heavily for Hillary Clinton, going to see what the consequence of this was. I think that this is not going to be just red team versus blue team. like I think people are are going, and this is not going to be I think just like a normal election where because of divided government, nothing really happens right twenty twelve you you see the election win. it's not like huge policy changes right after that. big things are going to change. the consequences of governance are going to get very, very real and and people are going to suffer.
0: I felt talking to to sort of liberals around around town and, and around the country a sort of like sharp divergence in their visions of a possible Trump presidency. One in which it's like an authoritarian nightmare from which we never awaken and the other in which it's like a fiasco in which like democratic resistance is ultimately successful. There's a real chance that Trump will operate as a More corrupt than your average president due to lack of financial disclosure and more irresponsible than your average president due to his lack of deep ideological commitment, but successful in the sort of short term Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I do not believe that unleashing natural resource extraction in an unregulated manner is a good policy for the United States of America, I don't think it will foster long-term prosperity for the United States of America, but it really could generate a short-term jobs boom that like if timed correctly, can easily lift Trump to re-election. Um, similarly, I don't think Donald Trump has offered any uh, wise or profound or even broadly accurate statements about monetary policy, Um, but Donald Trump seems like the kind of guy who might not care so much about an independent and apolitical Federal Reserve and may simply install halfway through his term a uh, crony uh, along the lines of what we had in the Nixon administration. Jonathan Yellen's term is up in a year. Yeah, who deliberately runs monetary policy too hot during the crucial re-election season, uh, helping Trump coast to a win and creating a medium-sized inflation problem in in the second term. There's just a lot of kinds of things that, you know, a president could do and that in some ways it's a little remarkable that more presidents uh, don't do. Um, But, you know, particularly if you don't care about the environment and you don't really care about having high-minded people write about you as like, what a responsible guy that was mm-hmm. there's a lot of just kind of shenanigans you can pull that fall like way short of like you set yourself up as a dictator it's just kind of like goofball timing of events to sort of prime you for for election that's what that's what nixon did on a on a variety of fronts and uh you know it was bad it was scary the republic survived you know in a sense uh and that kind of i think people should prepare themselves Emotionally for like the full range of possibilities, including a frustrating situation in which like today, whatever your perspective on like, oh, my God, how could Democrats blow it? Like they they keep blowing it because actually Trump is a sort of wily and unprincipled operator because most presidents, most incumbent presidents get reelected because The geography of the United States of America puts a small thumb on the scale in favor of Republicans. It's just conceivable he could be Mm -hmm. like a president liberals don't like and have to put up with. And it's very frustrating.
2: And I think we're about to learn like how much how much of the way the White House works is because of like accepted norms around it. Like the norms you have a daily press briefing and you have a press corps and that like you operate in certain ways. Obviously, Trump has been a candidate who has – tested and broken a lot of our norms for how campaigns work in the United States, the things you say, the policies you you propose, and has shown again and again that he, he can win, kind of dismantling our conventional wisdom about what it takes to run a winning campaign in the United States. And I think one of the things we're going to see, you know, really beginning in January over the course of the next year is, you know, how much that transfers into his position in the White House or if we see, like, you know, in his speech last night, a shift towards kind of accepting some of the norms of how the executive branch usually works. I, You know, one way the Obama administration has weirdly set him up is, I, I think you guys would agree, they have really done a lot by executive action, kind of in mm-hmm. this gridlock space. They have pushed the norms and been involved in a number of lawsuits over the way that they have taken unilateral policy steps. They have changed kind of the... They've tried to change some of the norms around executive action that in ways that conservatives really did not like, in ways that they tried to push immigration policy and health policy that Congress would not have agreed with. And I think we are about to see like what a President Trump does with this shift that the administration you know, kind of started and laid the groundwork for and where he wants to go with that.
1: I think that's right. And and I think you'll see it in a lot of different places. I will note that just one of the very profound consequences here will be the Supreme Court, which looked like for the first time in a couple of generations, it would go Democratic or, um, you know, have a 5-4 liberal majority. Now we'll go, uh, seems quite certain, Republican for some time. Um, that's going to have a series of knock-on effects and particularly if Trump is able to name two justices, particularly if one of those other ones is a liberal one, uh, that I think will will have a very, very profound effect. Also, just note there's some strange off chance that Trump comes in to, to Matt's point a little bit as a very aggressive Keynesian, um, that he's able with the Republican Party to sort of come up with a mixture of tax cuts and infrastructure spending that – you know, would have been th- unthinkable given Republican Party deficit rhetoric from a couple of years ago, but nevertheless will unleash, like, you know, a certain amount of job creation. I just, and, and I just you know, wanted to, like, push back. I've seen this already. A push back a little on the characterization
0: of this likely fiscal not policy Kaysen. trajectory you're right, as Keynesian. It's right. like, not, not counter-cyclical. High, a, 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 it's not counter-cyclical. B, George W. Bush was a recent Republican Party president. He presided over a gigantic increase in the deficit. Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan was a Slightly more distant Republican Party president. He presided over a gigantic increase in the deficit. I do think that Trump will do what his two major Republican predecessors did. But Keynesian fiscal policy, right, is that you should run a deficit when unemployment is high and a Mm -hmm. surplus when it's low. Republican fiscal policy is you should run a deficit when a Republican is president (laughs) and you should – be run tight budget when a democrat is president right. i think i think the pattern has now actually like gone on for long enough that like we can really
1: say yeah, that that's a totally reasonable anyway, point sorry no no no. you're that, that that correction is well taken all right i think that's a good place to stop there's going to be a lot more to say we will we will be back soon to say it <laughs> but for now thank you for listening to the weeds it is a vox.com and Panoply production thank you for our producer afim shapiro uh we will see you soon